Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. A believer, and even a body of believers, can develop quite a list of accomplishments for the Lord, but without love, they might well be meaningless. As John records Jesus' words to the church of Ephesus, we find the Lord issuing this very warning. Let's join Pastor Phil now in Revelation chapter 2 to hear more. And I would ask all of you to be on guard for those who try to sow discord among brethren. If there's something that one of the leaders does or teaches that you think is a problem, come to us. We're not above being confronted by you on an issue. That's fine. But it's not acceptable to go around the body spreading discord and be watchful for those who try to do that because they're going to come in. Satan is going to always have his people that he'll bring into a body and they look great and they look very nice and, and they're very pleasant and, and they, they you know, make a lot of friends and then they bring out the weird doctrine or they make it a so subtle discord or this or that. Murmuring and complaining. God feels very strongly about it. So this church, Jesus said, look, you you don't tolerate that. You have tested, verse 2, those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. Yes, they tested these things. Look, Paul said in Ephesians 5, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5, he said, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. How do you test if something is good or bad? You've got a tester in your lap. You test it according to the Word of God. And then when you test it, if it's good, embrace it. If it isn't, reject it. Either way, you're making a judgment. This idea, oh, we can't judge. We can't judge hearts, but we certainly can judge actions. Jesus said, look, judge with righteous judgment. If a person is teaching false doctrine or they're involved in immorality and I confront them and try to correct them or instruct them from what the word of God tells me I'm to do, I'm making a judgment. I can't judge your heart. But if you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that's sin. And I need to confront you in a loving way and say, look, do you realize what the Bible says about this? Sometimes new believers don't realize what the Bible actually says about it. So we go to them and we try to work with them. Look, we're not, about, we're not all about throwing people out the first time they sin. We're all sinners saved by grace. And if a person is ignorant of the truths of God's word and they're involved in sin, and we go to them and we try to reason with them, show them what the Bible says, if they repent, wonderful. If they do not repent and then go out and continue to sow discord and whatever, then they have to be dealt with more firmly. They have to be disfellowshipped until they do repent. But this church was testing people. Hey, folks, there was false prophets in the early church. There were false apostles. There were characters going around saying, you know, that they were called by God to be an apostle or a a prophet. These guys were everywhere. And so this church was testing them. In fact, 35 years earlier, if you remember, in Acts chapter 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And the ship pulled into port in Miletus, where it was going to spend the night. Miletus was about 20 or 30 miles away from Ephesus. Paul spent three years there. 
So he sent some of his guys to Ephesus to get the Ephesian elders. And they came back to him. And you can read all that Paul said in in, uh, Acts chapter 20 to these guys. But at one point, he said in verse 25, or excuse me, verse 29, he said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now it's 35 years later, and this church is still doing a pretty good job, I think, watching out for evil imposters and tossing out those people that refused to repent. So they were doing pretty well still. That wasn't the problem. They were following what Paul had said pretty closely. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 3, And you have persevered and have Uh, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. In addition, they were commended for enduring hardships in not growing weary in serving God. There's a lot of Christians that have grown weary in serving God, and so they've kind of dropped out. I kind of joke around, there are some Christians who have retired. Let other people do it. I've set up chairs for the last five years. I'm done. Or I've worked, you know, the potlucks, or I've we're taught the Sunday school classes, or I've been an usher, or a greeter, or whatever. Let somebody else do it now. I guess I'm going to retire is what the idea is. Hey, look, we're going to retire when Jesus comes for us. Until such time as he comes for us, get to work. We're not supposed to be lounging around going, you know, let somebody else do it. We are all called to be servants as long as we're in these bodies on this earth. This church had been faithfully serving God for more than 40 years. As we come to the close of the first century, AD 95 or 6, when John wrote this, I mean, this church had been around now for over 40 years, and they had been faithfully serving God all that time. And then in verse 6, Jesus adds one more commendation. He says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's interesting that there are definitely things that Jesus hates. He no doubt hates sin and hates what's going on here. But I think this is the only place in the New Testament where he actually says, I hate this. Obviously, he feels pretty strongly about it. What were the Nicolaitans? Well, uh, people say they were a, a cult or a sect that followed Nicholas of Antioch, who we read about in Acts chapter 6, one of the early deacons. Now, where they get that, I don't know. Uh, There's nowhere in history that substantiates any sect that this Nicholas of Antioch led. But there are people you'll hear say, well, that's what it was. And and they were this kind of a sect that had broken away. And they had gotten off into kind of a shepherding movement, you know, and lording it over. Um, That might be, but I haven't found any evidence that there was such a group. I think the best way to look at who the Nicolaitans were is just to take the name Nicolaitans, and look at it, it's made up of two different Greek words. One is Nikeo, Nike, okay, the god of victory or to conquer. And then the word, we get our word laity from. Nicolaitan literally means to conquer over the people. And many believe it was a group that became the forerunners of those who brought into the church the idea of the clergy and the laity, a division that you'll find nowhere in the New Testament. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find the clergy, the priesthood, 
You know, men that are a little holier than the rest of us, a little closer to God. We're not worthy to come to God directly because we're too sinful. So we need to go through a priest, a mediator, to get to God. Now, who is our mediator? Jesus Christ. And because of what he did on Calvary's cross, the Bible says the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. God was saying, it's open house. Anybody who receives my son and is washed in the blood of my son can come to me directly. We are now, what, kings and priests. We don't need a good... Jesus died to end this idea that some were closer to God, had more authority to come to God than the rest of us. We are priests of our God in the sense that because of what Jesus did, we can enter into the presence of God anytime we want. We don't need a mediator. That's what his blood did for us. And Jesus is saying, I believe, I absolutely hate the concept, the teaching that my people are not worthy to come to me directly and have to come through a priesthood again. I hate those who lord over my people who try to stand between me and my people and say, you can't come to Jesus directly. You've got to come through me. So Jesus really is, feels very strongly about that. And he said to these, this church, you know, you've got this also. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Look, so far, so good. I mean, if the letter ended here, we would think, man, this is the perfect church. I mean, it sounds like the perfect church, doesn't it? And if we were standing on the outside looking in, we would say this is the perfect church. The only problem is Jesus wasn't standing on the outside looking in. He was inside looking in. He was walking in the midst of his church with those penetrating eyes that see into the heart. And he was looking for issues of the heart, matters of the heart. You know what? Churches get so concerned about such dumb, trivial things. Jesus didn't come to this church and go, you know, I really don't like the carpet, the color of the carpet you got in the sanctuary. I really don't like, you know, the kind of food you're serving in the food court. I mean, he didn't bother with any trivials. He was looking at the heart. He was looking at things that really mattered. And so we see the commendation. They did pretty well. But that brings us down to verse 4 and the accusation. And that one word, that first word, just it just sends kind of shivers up your spine. Never Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. All of these positive qualities were all negated by one negative. They were going through the motions, but they had lost the emotion in their relationship with Jesus. This church was a well-oiled machine, but that was the problem. God doesn't want machines cranking out emotionless service. He wants a love relationship with his people. Didn't Jesus say the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? He didn't say the greatest commandment is that you serve the Lord your God, although service is important. He didn't say that was the greatest commandment. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, you can turn there. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what Paul said about this. He said in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He even goes on to say, even if I gave my body on the mission field and I was killed, a martyr, if I didn't do it out of a love for Jesus Christ, it is meaningless. Notice he doesn't say that they lost their first love. He says what? They, they left it. And it was a slow, gradual process, by the way. I mean, the Greek implies something that took place over time. You know, we don't just walk away from God. Our hearts don't go from hot to cold overnight. There is a process there, kind of like the hardening of our arteries. I mean, and that's the Greek word that is used in, in a lot of these places, where we get our word um, uh, sclerosis, atherosclerosis, the hardening of an artery. It takes a place over time, just like the hardening of a heart. It starts off with little compromises. We miss Bible study here or there or church, and then, you know, that leads to missing more not reading the Word every day like we used to, but now we read it two or three times a week. It it just, over time, our heart begins to depart from Him. We leave our first love. I like the way Weymouth translates this. Yet I have this against you, that you no longer love me as you did at first. What is first love? First love is that passionate love for Jesus that often characterizes a new believer. We were all there, right? You see a new believer now, what what do you notice about them? Oh, man, the excitement, the passion, the devotion. And they don't care who knows it either. I mean, they're wearing the Jesus T-shirts, you know. They got the big Bible under their arm. They got the bumper stickers all over the car. They they love Jesus. They're in love with Jesus. They don't care who knows it. They're wanting to tell everybody. That's how we were at one time. We were obnoxious, too. I mean, it's that excited, fervent, unashamed kind of love. It's what some have called honeymoon love between a husband and a wife. And while it's true that the longer you're married, that love deepens and matures and grows in a very deep way, I think that if we think that we have to trade that off, if we have to, that we have to give up romantic honeymoon love as we, we are married for uh, you know, longer and longer, I think that's a mistake. Yes, our love as couples will grow for each other as time goes on. That's true. It'll deepen and so on. I don't think you have to give up honeymoon love. I think you can work to keep that love, that kind of that courtship love. And and we're going to show you how to do it. All right. But you know what the word Ephesus means? Remember, we told you that the names of the each of the cities mean something. The name Ephesus means darling or desired one. You hear the heart of God here? You hear what Jesus is saying? He is saying, darling, you're my desired one. You know, it reminds me of what God said in Jeremiah chapter 2 with regard to the children of Israel. He said, you know, I remember those early days of our courtship. I remember when, you know, I first took you by the hand and led you out of Egypt and proposed marriage to you. And how you were so in love with me. You used to talk about me all the time. Remember girls when you were in love with your your husbands? I mean, you know, when you first met them and you're talking all the time, you know, uh, to your friends, to them, or anyone who listened, you wanted to talk to about, you know, this 
incredible guy, you know. And, of course, you guys, love is a very powerful thing. I mean, it caused you to, you know, uh, make sure that you, you know, wore the right kind of clothes and you brushed your teeth and, you know, you put on some cologne once in a while and you and you never belched at the at the restaurant, you know, and, and, and love, you know, caused you to take her to a restaurant where you didn't have to drive by the menu. I mean, you actually sat down and, and read the menu together. I mean, love is a powerful thing. And God is saying, I remember that, that those, those early days of our espousal. Oh, you used to write holiness to the Lord on the, tent, uh, the flaps of your tent and on your horse's bridles. He said, but what have I done that your heart is cool towards me? What have I done to you? I still love you as much as I ever have. Why is your heart cold towards me? As Israel began to turn away in the wilderness from him. I think that one of the worst, I think, I think the worst thing that can ever happen to any relationship, especially your relationship with the Lord and with your spouse, is when you begin to take that person for granted. That's what kills romance. That's what kills intimacy. Whenever you as a spouse begin to take your spouse for granted, you just begin to, you know, not appreciate what they do. Or you begin to take the Lord for granted. I think that is that really indicates that a marriage or your relationship with God is in trouble. It, it boggles the mind to think that a Christian or a church like Ephesus could be serving God this fervently and yet not really be doing it out of love for Jesus. That's kind of strange, isn't it? If we hadn't read it here, we wouldn't think that was possible. How could you as a Christian or as a church serve God this long with this much you know, consistency and all to the point of exhaustion and not really do it out of a love for Jesus Christ. Well, let me just say this. There are a lot of reasons why people serve that, you know, are not really because they really love the Lord with a passionate heart. Sometimes they serve out of guilt. Sometimes Christians serve out of guilt. You know, maybe the pastor or somebody else comes up to them and says, like, we really need your help. You know, you haven't done anything around here lately or, you know, we, we could use your help. Look at everybody else working. You're not doing anything. Oh, okay, fine. So they serve out of guilt. Sometimes they serve out of the desire for recognition. I want people to notice me, you know. And so they will serve because they want the attention. Sometimes they will serve because, honestly, they have certain gifts. And when they use those gifts, they feel good. They feel fulfilled. And so people will many times in the body of Christ serve, not really out of a love for Jesus, but because they really love the way they feel when they do it. So there's all kinds of reasons why people serve. But Ephesus fell into the trap of thinking that loveless service was enough to please the Lord. And folks, listen to me. That is often what happens. When your heart for the Lord begins to cool, but you are not wanting to go back into the world, because, you know, you're really a born-again Christian, and the world is nothing for you anymore. So there's no desire to go back partying, drinking, carousing, because you're dead to that. It's just that you're not really in a full-on relationship with the Lord right now either. You're kind of in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, right? And you know what happens when you begin to feel that passion begin to wane and things become routine and almost an obligation? We oftentimes substitute activities for that passion that was once there. In other words, we're not feeling very close to the Lord, so to supplement or to make up for it, I'm going to do more stuff. 
I'm going to be involved in more activities. I'm going to go to more Bible studies or do more of this or more of that. I'm not putting down service, but you can become a Martha very easily where you think that all he desires is for you to run around like a crazy person trying to do everything under the sun because that's how you're going to please him. That's how you're going to show, you know, whatever. But in all the while, he's saying, you know what? I'd rather you just sit at my feet like Mary did. She's found the better part. I wish you'd find it too. Because we get exhausted. We get frazzled. Martha, Martha, you're so cumbered about and so anxious about many things. I've heard the Lord say that to me many times. But Lord, I'm so busy for you. Look what I'm doing. God says, I see what you're doing. It's not that I don't appreciate it. I'd rather sp- I, I, I love the servant more than the service. I've said this before, but let me say it again. I see some new faces. You guys, how would you feel if your wife came up to you one day and said, you know what, I just want you to know that I don't really love you anymore. I have absolutely no feelings for you anymore. But you know what? I made a commitment. So I'm going to stay married to you, and I'm going to cook your meals, and I'm going to clean your clothes, and I'm going to take care of your house. But I want you to know there's absolutely, I have absolutely no feelings for you at all. What man in his right mind would stop and think about that for a minute and go, I could live with that. I mean, who, who, what man here would be satisfied with that kind of relationship? Look, I didn't marry my wife because I needed somebody to cook my meals and clean my house and wash my clothes. I could have hired a maid to do that. I married Cindy because I fell in love with her and she fell in love with me. And now all the acts of service that she does for me, look, are to me very beautiful and meaningful because I know they are an expression of her love. That's why they mean so much to me. Because she does that because she loves me. Now, if there wasn't any love there, it was just just the motions of service, it would be meaningless. You don't get married to gain a housekeeper. Not if you're in your right mind. That's not what marriage is. Again, hire a maid. Marriage is all about two people who fall in love with each other and want to be together the rest of their lives. They want to communicate to each other. They want to spend time with each other. They love being together. They love doing things. That's what a marriage is all about. Two people becoming one with each other. And that's what God desires from all of us. It's obvious that Jesus wants more than service. He says it right here. He wants romance. Remember, he is holding his church with his nail-scar hand. That is the ultimate expression of love, to die for someone. Jesus died for us because he loves us more than we could ever know. And then when he asks us to spend a little time with him, what do we say? We give him excuses. Oh, I can't, Lord, you know how many Bible studies I'm going to, don't you? It's like, it's like the movie Fiddle on the Roof. I haven't seen it in a long time, but who was the main character? Was it Tevia? Tevia? Remember one point in the movie, he, of course, he sings it. And I forgot how the melody goes, but he asked his wife, Do you love me? And what she says, she said, Do I love you? Don't I cook for you? Don't I clean for you? Yes, but do you love me? See, he wanted to know if she really loved him. And what is she saying? Well, look what I do for you. I clean and I cook and I do all these things. Yeah, that's wonderful. But that's not what I'm asking you. Do you love me? That's what Jesus is saying to us here. He says, do you love me? And we say, Lord, don't I go to church? Don't I read the Bible? Don't I help out in the Sunday school class? I'm not asking you that. Do you love me? 
When was the last time you told the Lord that you loved him and it wasn't attached to some request? It wasn't embedded in some prayer request. You just told him you loved him just to say those words. Some marriages have so degenerated that the words I love you are only used by couples to get things from each other. A man will tell his wife, I love you, because he wants sex. Or a woman will tell her husband, I love you, because she wants a new wardrobe or a new car or something. Well, that's the accusation. It brings us to verse 5 and the exhortation, how to fix the problem. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Look, first love can be restored if we follow these three instructions that Jesus gave. First of all, we must remember. And the Greek is literally keep on remembering. I don't think this is a one-time deal. I think it's something we have to do every day, or at least periodically. As we remember how it was when we first accepted the Lord. And that's the goal, that we always stay there. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. Set free.